This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Now, the Quebec Pee Wee Tournament kicks off tomorrow night. And I'm guessing that many of you know about the Quebec Pee Wee Tournament. I've heard about the Quebec Pee Wee Tournament. I've read about it. Maybe have watched some of it. Maybe a few of you have even been out there to see it. number of years ago, probably... 10 years ago now, I went out there with one of the Hamilton teams that once upon a time went there to play. And I got to tell you, it is pretty remarkable. I would, I would put it up with the Little League World Series in baseball as the two, one of the two greatest tournaments for kids in the world. Certainly up there with the Little League World Series as far as exclusivity, grandioseness. Is that a word? Grandioseness? We're going to make up a word. We're going to call it that. But you get the idea. It's a huge, huge, huge thing. Biggest biggest youth hockey tournament in the world by far. And certainly the most prestigious. Only the best teams or only many of the best teams get invited. And it is not every year that Hamilton gets to send a team. In fact, it's not common. It may be every three years now, every maybe every four, sometimes every second year, but it's not that common for Hamilton to be able to send a team. This year, we will be. Let me bring in two people here, if I can get the phone system to work right. Uh, There is one, Chris Trevally is the head coach of the Hamilton Huskies, and Tyson Wasink is a defenseman on the team. Guys, thanks for joining me tonight. You're very welcome. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Chris, let's start with you. Coach, let's start with you. Because, I mean, you are, you know about this, right? And this is, a, this is a huge thing for a coach and for a team. Absolutely. This tournament's been around since I was a kid. Um, I grew up playing in the Huskies organization, and I unfortunately never had an opportunity to go. I'm just glad that we can give these kids an opportunity to, uh, to experience it. Is it something that you knew about back when you were playing and wanted to do? Absolutely, yes. And so, it's, I mean, how long have you been sort of carrying this torch of wanting to do this then? Back since you were that age, since you were 12? Yeah, for sure. And then as soon as I got into coaching, specifically with this organization, I, I, I knew I could maybe get the opportunity with this particular age group to, uh, to be able to go. Now, I got to ask you then, because someone who has been wanting to do something for this long, and now it's going to happen, your first game is Saturday morning, any nerves? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, we have a tough test ahead of us. Uh, not with just, not just with the first game, but with, with pretty much every game. Um, the way they structure the tournament is basically your, your first game is almost like a freebie. Um, and after that, it's complete elimination, almost like a, like a tennis tournament. You lose, you go home. Yeah, and it's and it's you. You don't get an easy draw in the first one. You're playing Team Illinois in the first game, which, as I understand it, is the same. I mean, you guys are the Hamilton Huskies. You choose from half of Hamilton. They've got the entire state of Illinois to draw an all-star team from. Yeah, and may I add that uh, it's usually outside the state as well. They'll grab some kids <laughs> from here and there. <laughs> so it's a fair fight, of course. Yes, um, but <laughs> and and then if you win that game again, I looked at the schedule. If you win that game. Uh, there is a chance, a 50-50 chance, you'll get the hometown Quebec Ramparts next, which, of course, they won't have anybody there cheering for them. Oh, gosh. You know what? That'll be... Uh, I I think we couldn't have drew that script up any better. I think that will be uh, an experience of a lifetime for the kids, specifically being able to play against the home team like that. It'll definitely be a full house, and, and the kids will remember that forever. So what do you say? And I want, I'm going to get to Tyson in just a second here, but you're the coach... What do you say to a bunch of 12-year-old boys who are going to be looking around? Because you play also, by the way, I should mention, your first game is at the, the new NHL arena they built in Quebec in the hopes of getting an NHL team. What do you say to a bunch of 12-year-old boys to not let this become so huge that your really talented group just completely loses their mind and can't play? Really, in a nutshell, just go out there, work hard, and have fun. I mean, th- this really is a, a unique group of kids. Um, they, they really rise to these challenges. So I'm really not that worried about it. Um, this year I've really noticed the bigger the game, the, the bigger these guys play. So uh, really there's not going to be much to say other than just go out there and be yourselves. Uh, Tyson, you, um, you're a defenseman on this team. What do you make of all this? Because, I mean, you're, you don't have the same length of time to have thought about this as your coach did, but I've, I'm guessing you've thought about this for a while. Yeah, um, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go, and um, I think we have a really good chance of going through the tournament, and um, it's a really great opportunity to go to this tournament. Do you know much about it, 
like, what do you know about the Quebec Pee Wee tournament? Uh, I don't know, know much about it. Um, it's a really great tournament, like you said. Um, I don't really know much about it. Sorry. It, has your mom or dad or coaches or anyone else sort of given you any kind of rundown about who some of the players are who have played? I mean, Wayne Gretzky played in it and Guy Lafleur. I mean, these are guys, you know, Gretzky, but you may not know the other ones. But, the, I mean, this is this has been a big thing over the years. Have people told you about it or they just try to play it down a bit? Yeah, my personal trainer, actually, Bradley um, Eisner, actually um, went into it as a Flambeau Sabres AA. He uh, said it's a once-in-a-lifetime. Um, it's a great tournament overall. Um I really look forward to going to it. Have you ever played in an NHL size arena before? Uh, no, sorry, no. <laughs> so is that so? When you walk out there and you see sixteen or seventeen or twenty thousand seats, and I don't know how many people will be there, but there was always a lot. Is that going to be exciting, or is that going to be a little scary? Yeah, but uh, when you look up at all the fans or whatever, um, it's really a breathtaking opportunity, and uh, yeah, it's going to be great. Tell me a little bit about the team. I understand that uh, you guys are actually pretty good. Yeah, um, we actually beat the we actually beat the number one team in the USA, uh, Honeybakes. Beat them seven four in the showcase showcase tournament in Toronto. Wow! So so yeah. you've got, so there's reason for you guys to be confident that you're not going to go there and get killed. You guys have actually played really good teams, so you, you have confidence that you could do pretty well here. Yeah, we just got to keep working hard. Uh, Gotta get, keep shooting the puck at the net, and getting rebounds, and uh, yeah. And you guys, I understand that you guys haven't lost a game in over a month, and only like one in the last two months. You guys don't lose a lot. No, we don't. Sorry, we just work hard and uh, in the, in your face, and um, working hard. Is it hard, Tyson? Has it been hard to concentrate on school and stuff, knowing this is coming up? Because again, this is a really big deal. Oh yeah, it's really hard to concentrate. You're just so excited to get in the car and uh, go over to Quebec and kick some butt. Uh, Chris, let me come back to you for just a second. How how did you get your team into this? Because every AAA team, I think, probably in North America and beyond, apply and try to get into this. How did you guys make it in? We just, you know what, um, you can, you can only take care of what you can do. So it was just a matter of um, having a body of work over the last couple of years. We've won some really big tournaments. Uh, we're competitive. Um, and, and and it's just making sure everyone's on the same page. We set specific goals for this year, and and getting to Quebec was one of them. And so uh, the, the boys just really worked hard for this. I'm really proud of them. What is a little bit unusual about this? Uh, and I'll be honest, and, and some people are going to think this is an insult. It's not at all. But it's a little bit unusual that it's a Hamilton Huskies team because traditionally over the last number of years, it's been the Junior Bulldogs teams that have made it there. And is this a sign that things are balancing out in the city as far as the two programs? Or did you land in the sweet spot and you have a year where you've got a lot of kids who are playing for the Huskies who are just really fantastic? I think, I think the latter, yeah, for sure. We, we have a, a very strong nucleus of area kids that, um, that, that they're just, it's, it's a really good birth year in Hamilton, the 2004 uh, year for for not just us but the junior bulldogs as well they've got some really really talented kids as well and you know what certain years it, it just happens and it's happened in the past with the huskies organization the 99s uh the ni- 1999 birth year had a very strong uh, uh birth year with kids like hayden davis who's probably going to be an nhl draft pick this year and I will not be surprised if in a few years' time you're going to see some of these kids on this team uh, have their name called in the OHL draft. In fact, I'll, I'll guarantee it. Oh, I, I would I would suggest so as well. I'm, I'm, just before we let you go, because we got we got to go here, but do you feel, you said you were a little bit nervous, but is there pressure? Because, I mean, you're not just, you're going to represent the Huskies and you're going to represent yourself and you want to have the kids do well. Uh, but you've also got, you know, you're, it's not a Team Canada thing, but it's a city thing. You've got the, the, the name of the city on your sweater. And I got to think there's a part of it that you go, I, I, I want to make sure we don't embarrass the city. Yeah, no, you know what? I, I really don't look at it that way. I, I'm proud of these kids no matter what happens. Um, you know, this was just one of our goals to get there. And I really, really, truly believe we have a good opportunity to go far in this tournament, perhaps win it. And, wow. you know, no matter what happens, as long as we conduct ourselves with class the way we always do, I think I think we'll be okay. You know, uh, and let me flip it around, because, it, you know, if you do very well, the uh, coming up next, we've got a guy who played in this tournament, 
and that was with the team, the Hamilton Junior Bulldogs team, we'll get to him in a second, that had the record for most number of kids drafted into the OHL. 14 of their players were drafted from that team. Yes, yeah, the 1998 birthday. The 98. That was, and that was I, pretty good. I can't remember. They won either one or two games there, but, I mean, it, it's a tough, tough, tough tournament, and if you do really well, man, it's something really special for your team. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know what? We're, we're just going to go down there. We're going to do the best we possibly can. We're going to represent the city with class. And, you know, whatever happens, happens. But, I mean, definitely we're going we're gonna to do our best for the city. Chris Trevally, head coach of the Hamilton Huskies, Peewees, and Tyson Wassink, defenseman for the team. Uh, you guys take off. When are you taking off? Um, I, I'm leaving Friday morning. Tyson, how about you? Um, I'm, t- I'm leaving uh, Thursday morning tomorrow. Well, guys, good luck. We will be keeping up on you as you go along. We'll uh, we'll be keeping people up to date on how you do because it's a great thing. And uh, good luck, guys, and we'll be hearing about you soon. Yeah, thank thanks you. so much, Scott. Really appreciate it. And thanks for everything you do for amateur sport in the city of Hamilton. Happy to do it. That's um, those are uh, those are your guys who are going to be representing the city at the Quebec Pee Wee Well, let me let me go to a guy who's actually been there. Brandon Sajan plays for the Hamilton Bulldogs. Now, the big Hamilton Bulldogs, but once upon a time, he was playing for the Hamilton Junior Bulldogs, and he was part of that 1998 team that had a record 14 players eventually drafted into the OHL. Uh, Brandon, you got to play in the Quebec Pee Wee Tournament. Tell me about how, I mean, you've played in a lot of places now. You've played in a lot of big buildings. You've played in a lot of big games. How did that compare to all the other stuff you've done in hockey? Uh, it's definitely up there. Um, I mean, you know, as a Pee Wee player, um, you know, we had, we had some pretty, pretty good teams in uh, playing for the Junior Bulldogs. And uh, to go with that group of guys to Quebec and play in front of 9,000, you know, P- uh, fans a night, that was kind of uh, the first experience uh, playing in front of that many people at the Quebec Colisee uh, Arena there. And, uh, yeah, it was an unbelievable experience. When Now, you're, um, you're what, 19 now, 18 now? 18. 18. So when you were 12... And you walk out into a rink, and there are nine thousand people. What is for a twelve-year-old? What's that experience like? <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty big uh, eye-opener. It's, it's definitely exciting, and um, you know, obviously at that age, um, you know, you're wondering what it's like to play, you know, in the OHL and you know, in the NHL even. And uh, I think that gives you a little taste of uh, you know the pressure that comes along with playing in front of big crowds like that. Does it become a little more emotional almost because you're a kid and there's just so much it seems riding on it when you don't win the whole thing? Because you guys were a very, very, very good team. Does it become a little more emotional? Is it almost a little more sad about the fact that you don't win? Or was it just, oh, that was fun. Let's uh, let's just go home and keep going. Yeah, I mean, uh, you play hockey to win. So it was kind of disappointing that we couldn't, uh, you know, win, win that tournament. But, uh, you know, we were lucky enough to go on. And, uh, you know, that, that team definitely had... Uh, uh, did some special, you know, we won home HAs and OHFs and all that. So, uh, but when you look back at it, it was the experience, you know, the, the winter carnival and um, interacting with all the different teams there. Um, it was a great setup, and uh, you know, looking back, it was it was unbelievable. Do you remember who you played against? Uh, yeah, we played against. Um, we played St. Louis, and uh, that's kind of the team that's. Uh, sticks out, and uh, I think we played Honey Baked and uh, a few other teams like that. How did you do? What would, Do you remember what your record was? How many games you won? Uh, I, I can't remember. We lost, in the, I think, in the first round of St. Like a good St. Louis team, and then I think we won like three games after that, but um, yeah, I don't uh, you know, remember our exact record. Just before I let you go, um, again, you've been there, you've lived through this thing, and you've played a lot of other places now, but if you were going to, if one of these kids who's going from this Hamilton Huskies team, if they were to ask you, what would you say, what would you say that this was like when you look back on it? What do you say is the thing that stands out most that, that really you remember from that tournament? Um, I would say, you know, just enjoy it with your teammates. Um, it's kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity to go there and, uh, and go play there, and um, so yeah, I'd say just uh, go there and just play your own game, and uh, just enjoy it with your teammates and work as hard as you can. Uh, should I ask you as I let you go: Have your ears stopped buzzing from the game today? <laughs> uh, I don't know; it's, they're still kind of ringing. They're <laughs> pretty loud up there. <laughs> Brandon Sajan of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Appreciate the time tonight. 
Thank you very much. Uh, I'm asking about his ears ringing. Today was a uh, they had a Bulldogs game at 10:30 this morning. It was a school day game. They had 9,000 school kids, and let me tell you. Um, I'm trying to think of a good description of what it sounds like when you have 9,000 elementary school kids scream in an enclosed space simultaneously. It would be like taking a drill and putting it straight into your ear tube and just drilling right through to your brain. That's kind of the, the, the noise that, um, that you get in there. Um, let me tell you, I mentioned off the top, and it's a huge, huge thing for this team, and I will keep you up to date as, as we hear what they do over the, the next few days. I went there about 10 years ago to cover a team. It was a Hamilton Junior Bulldogs team, really, really good team. And they also, was not the team Brandon was on, they also played against St. Louis, a St. Louis team. Hamilton outshot that St. Louis team, I can't remember the number, it was like 65-2, to two, or no, it was not, 65-5 to five maybe, and lost one nothing. The goalie for St. Louis was the greatest 12-year-old goalie I'd ever seen in my entire life. This kid was making saves that were physically impossible to make. They were peppering this kid, and they couldn't score, and they got knocked out of the tournament. And I always thought, I'm going to keep up. I'm going to follow that St. Louis goalie because he's going to go somewhere. And you know what? He never did. Never could find out where he went. Maybe he went on to college. I don't know. But it was not... He hasn't gone on to some great thing. I was sure that the, I was the scout. I was That kid was going on to great things. He was the greatest kid goalie I'd ever seen in my life. And I'm sure the greatest kid goalie any of those junior Bulldogs had ever seen because they walked out of that rink that night shaking their heads. But man, they had a fun time. What an unbelievable event for these kids. I'll keep you up to date. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Did any of you listening out there Ever, once upon a time, watch SCTV. Remember the old TV show with Eugene Levy, all the Hamilton guys, and John Candy, and Dave Thomas. All's. If you did, you probably remember one of the famous skits from Saturday or from SCTV was John Candy doing the Johnny LaRue workout. The Johnny LaRue workout. He was on a reclining chair in his well, lazy boy chair, and he did one sit-up. And then stopped and went and got a sandwich out of the fridge and ate the sandwich and and stopped doing his workout, which honestly was the absolute ideal workout. A few seconds of great effort and then you're done. And that's always been the dream, hasn't it? I mean, even I could get in shape if I only had to do that little bit of exercise. Well, there's a new study out. And I started, as I was reading this, I started thinking, could it be that Johnny LaRue wasn't really all that far off? Well, actually, no, he was. He was still very far off. But this new research does suggest that you don't need to be the person at the gym who's there at 6 in the morning and stays there till 9 every day, losing 6 gallons of sweat in order to possibly get in some form of shape. It seems that short, intense bursts of stair climbing can have a big, significant impact on your life. And when I say short, like not 10 minutes, short. And it sounds good. This sounds really, really good. It sounds like it's something that almost every one of us could do. And from what I'm reading, you can get significant benefits from this. But here's the thing. Every time I think of something like this, I think, you know, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So, Let us bring on the man who is behind this study, Dr. Martin Gabala, professor from McMaster's Department of Kinesiology and the lead author on the study who is behind this. Doctor, thanks for doing this tonight. Thanks for having me on. So as I said off the top, uh, getting great health benefits without having to do too much. I mean, where do I sign up for this? This is perfect. It's a bit of a teaser headline, the one-minute workout, (laughs) but it does refer to our study, which was three 20-second all-out efforts, and the most recent application was stair climbing. As you alluded to in the intro, main message is that short, vigorous exercise can provide a lot of health benefits, a lot of bang for your buck. So it really, I mean, it really is true. With a minute of really hard effort, you can get at least some kind of benefit for yourself. Absolutely. We've been studying interval training in my lab for about 15 years. We've been increasingly interested in time-efficient forms of exercise because whether it's an excuse or not, we know the number one cited barrier for why people don't exercise is lack of time. 100%. So we're trying to provide some more options that are grounded in good science. And to answer the question, yes, as little as one minute of vigorous exercise, provided it's broken up into a couple of intervals, 
can provide a lot of benefit. Okay, so um, are we now, is this though saying that we're just comparing this to the absolutely sedentary lifestyle so that if you're doing absolutely nothing and just sitting on the couch eating Cheetos, doing a minute a day is better than that? Or is there actual, were you able to discover that this kind of exercise and bursts of exercise actually had significant kind of benefits for you with your health? Let me explain it this way. So first of all, to be clear, the protocol involves a 10-minute time commitment. Now, that's including an easy warm-up, some recovery in between these 20-second hard efforts, and a little bit of cool-down. So start to finish, 10 minutes, but within that 10-minute period, one minute of very vigorous exercise. We've done studies that have compared that 10-minute exercise session to a more traditional 50-5-0 minutes of traditional steady state cardio. And so if we had people do this type of training for three months, after the three months, both groups improved their fitness, so their cardio fitness to the same extent, their blood sugar to the same extent, even though the interval training group was exercising for five-fold less and the total time commitment was five-fold lower. So this really can be a time-efficient way to get numerous health benefits, including those that we associate with what are reflected in the public health guidelines. I mean, that, that's a staggering thing to think about, that for those people who are out there working for 50 minutes a day, that they possibly could be doing with the same, having the same effect in much, much, much shorter of a time. Without going into too much of the rabbit hole of deep, deep, deep science, how do you establish this? How, do you, how are you able to show that this is actually the case? How, what, what do you do in your study to prove that it, the impact is the same? Sure. So one of our most important measures is something called VO2 max, maximal oxygen uptake. Uh, some people might think of this as a, a stress test. So that type of exercise where we very precisely measure the maximum rate at which the body can use oxygen. So that's a measure of cardiorespiratory fitness or cardiovascular health. It's a really important marker, and a lot of people are suggesting it should be a vital sign. So just like we measure blood pressure or blood sugar or your body weight, cardiorespiratory fitness is a really important health marker. And so that's one of the key measures that we routinely make in the laboratory. And we showed that both groups boosted that by 19% over three months, which is a marked improvement in their fitness. Okay, and when you did this study... Are you using people who are already in tip-top shape or are you using the average people who would be like me or you or someone else who doesn't necessarily do a lot already? In this particular study, we were using sedentary individuals, so more quote-unquote average individuals, hardly elite athletes. Uh, And if there's something we're learning from interval training, there's lots of different flavors and it can be applied to many different individuals. Now, that's not to say this all-out vigorous one-minute exercise is suited for everyone, but there are lots of different flavors of interval training that have been applied in scientific studies to many different groups, including with people with type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, cardiovascular disease. So would there still be increased benefits to the people doing much, much more? Absolutely. And so the message here is not at all that there's anything wrong with the public health guidelines. They're based on great science. But we also know that the vast majority of the population is not listening, and the number one cited barrier is lack of time. So clearly, we should be active every day. There is real risks associated with sedentary behavior, sedentary living. And what we're trying to find are some other menu choices, more options to give to people, because some people will think, oh, if I don't have 45 minutes or an hour in the day, they'll tend to blow off their workout. And so if there's a message from the research that's No, even if you have 10 or 15 minutes in the day, you can get in a high-quality workout and know that it's something that will boost your fitness and improve your health. Describe for me, just so we understand, when you you keep using the word vigorous, what is vigorous by your definition? So in these studies, and you know, there's no free lunch here. So in these studies where we've been using these all-out 20-second bursts, it's just that. So you get on the bike and you pedal as hard as you can for 20 seconds, or if you're climbing stairs, you're climbing the stairs as fast as you can for 20 seconds. So again, it's as hard as you can go exercise, but I'd like to emphasize it's one flavor of interval training. It's not the only way to do interval training, 
And there's lots of various options. Even the less extreme versions have been shown to be more time efficient than the traditional approach. One in the in the headline for this story, one of the things that said was that by doing this on the stairs, this can help. Now, is is there some kind of magic to the stairs, to the muscles you use in that, or was that simply because you know what everyone has, or most everyone has stairs in their house, so there's a way to do it? Is there, if you did the same thing outside on the the street in front of your house, just running back and forth, is that the same thing? It is. Well, we're one of our focuses or one of our goals was to take interval training out of the lab. So we do lots of these fancy studies in a laboratory setting, very controlled, but that's not necessarily translatable. And so we thought, what's a way that people could do this in a very practical manner on their own? A lot of people live in apartment complexes or work in office towers, and so stair climbing was a very convenient option that people could apply in their own lives. There's nothing specific about stair climbing or cycling for that matter. You could run uphill, you could do rowing exercise, you could do swimming. Really, your heart doesn't know what your muscles are doing, and so the cardiovascular boost can come from lots of different types of activity. The point basically is just get your heart pumping as fast as possible. Uh, Absolutely. And again, I want to stress here, this is an extreme example of the notion that more intense exercise can provide a lot of benefit. It's not at all to say if you're someone just out there sitting on the couch that you should just jump up and do this really vigorous exercise. What we'll often tell people is get out of your comfort zone. So even if your normal exercise is walking around the block, An interval session for you can be picking up the pace for a few light posts and then backing off. And as simple as that sounds, there's really good evidence to show that, for example, in people with type 2 diabetes, if they do interval walking compared to continuous steady state walking, they have a greater boost in their fitness, they lose more weight, and the improvement in their blood sugar is greater than just that continual walking at a steady pace. So we need to get people moving in general. But especially if you're time-pressed or you're looking for a boost in your fitness, consider an interval-based approach. It's really interesting you say that because back a few months ago when I was still running, um, which I have to get back to one of these days, um, I had read something and tried it, and it was it were, that if you were to walk for a minute and then go as hard as you can for 30 seconds running, as hard as you can, and then not walk, sorry, jog, and then sprint like crazy for 20 or 30 seconds, then keep jogging, that that's the way you lose weight, that's the way you get in shape. And I was like, oh, I don't think that really works. And man, you do it, and all of a sudden, you, when your heart is really going, it, it really does have an impact. The concept of interval training has been around for over 100 years. There were Finnish Olympians that were winning gold medals at the turn of the century using what you might be familiar with this term, fartlek-style training, which is just speed play in Swedish. And it's this free-form style of running where you pick up the pace a little bit and then you back off. So the basic idea of interval training has been around for well over a century, and it's been studied scientifically for at least 60 years. So the fact that you're doing this science right now, uh, I find fascinating because there was a time not that long ago that everybody was active to some degree. Many of us, I mean, many people, I mean, if you go back far enough, your work required it, almost everybody's work, but now we have so many people sitting at desks and doing other things. Do you have any idea? Have you ever read anything? Do you have any sense of what percentage of the population really is getting almost no exercise that this kind of thing would be applicable for? It depends on the study, it depends on the survey, but upwards in some studies of 50%, or if you flip that, 85% or so of individuals are not meeting the public health guidelines. So again, that tells us we have an issue with adherence or getting people motivated to do exercise. And so again, if we can give some different options, but knowing it's grounded in good science, we think that's a worthwhile endeavor. Have you received, I mean, since this came out, have you received any skeptical blowback? And and the reason I ask you that question is not doubting your science, but it's what I started with at the beginning of this. If it sounds too good to be true, someone who says, you know, I know that if I, if I want to do a workout, it's got to be an hour. I mean, I just, I can't, there have to be people who are very skeptical about the idea that you could get a decent workout or at least a a usable, a, a passable workout in this short a time because we've been we've been trained to believe that it's a comprehensive thing you have to do to get in shape. No, absolutely. We hear from the skeptics all the time and I can understand why because it almost borders on, you know, infomercial type territory. Um, you know, in the book that I just wrote, we called it the one minute workout. It's a teaser headline to get some attention, obviously. But what I try to do in the book is translate what's often complex and contradictory science but hopefully boil it down in an accessible manner 
that people can read and understand, but provide them with the evidence behind this work. And so in all of our studies, I stand behind the science, obviously, we still have a lot to learn. And we're nowhere near suggesting that, for example, we should replace the public health guidelines or a few minutes of interval exercise a week is going to provide all of the benefits to the traditional approach. But we know it can provide a lot of benefit. And so I like to think of it a little bit. It's like a bit like the new emerging drug on the market. You know, there's the long established drug of choice, which is based on huge body of science, epidemiological studies, cross-sectional studies, and interval training is a bit like the new drug on the market. It's showing a lot of promise in early phase trials, but we're not quite at the point where we should say it provides all of the benefits of the traditional approach because most of the interval training studies are relatively small, relatively short-term, lasting up to a couple of months. And so where we really need to go are these large-scale randomized clinical trials comparing these short, hard bursts of exercise versus the traditional approach in large groups of subjects. Really interesting that you mentioned the infomercials because I can picture one in my head right now for some contraption, I can't remember what it is, where it basically says everybody can, af- can, can afford five minutes or seven minutes or whatever it is. And as you're talking, yeah, you know what? That, that machine, that device then probably does actually make as much sense as they're saying it does. But what you're describing, you don't really need that machine. Just do it for five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it is with your stairs or with whatever else, you're getting the same deal. Yeah, and you know, if people can go to the gym and afford it, that's all great, of course, or if that's what motivates them and be in a social setting like that, but you really don't need any fancy equipment and you don't need a lot of time. You know, old-style calisthenic training, bodyweight-style intervals can be extremely effective uh, as well. I call it hotel room workouts. So when you're traveling, you're on the road, you do some burpees and air uh, squats and maybe run the stairs a couple of times, you can get in a really good workout that's at least going to maintain your fitness uh, when you're time-pressed. Yeah, uh, you know, do the Jack LaLanne thing. You may not want to wear the same outfit he did on TV once upon a time with that belt and the one-piece bodysuit, but, you know, same idea. Everything old is new again. <laughs> uh, it, is a, it is a really, really interesting study, and it gives hope to those of us who are squeezed for time. And you know what? I am going to, based on what you've said, I am going to try this because it seems to make a lot of sense, and even if you don't have a ton of it, it's, uh, it seems to make, as I say, it's, it's worth giving it a shot. Uh, Martin, Martin Gabala from the McMaster Department of Kinesiology, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate you having me on. Uh, you know, that when you consider how much money they say that our bad health is costing the medical system with diabetes and obesity and all these other things. If his science is correct, and I have no reason to believe that it isn't, and it's been published in a peer-reviewed journal, uh, a respected, by the way, peer-reviewed journal, because we talked about that the other day that's on this show. There are some that aren't. Um, And if the science is correct, and if you only need to make decent gains in your health 10 minutes a day at the most without any weird equipment just to do it on the stairs of your house. You know, I I am going to sound like an infomercial now, but it's hard to believe that we can't find 10 minutes in our day. It's hard to believe that your day, that my day is so jammed from dawn till dusk that you can't find 10 minutes. I know I can. It's a question of whether I want to use those 10 minutes to exercise as hard as I possibly could and get my heart beating. That's the, see, that's the thing. Now that we actually say, oh, it's only 10 minutes. Well, now there's another excuse, right? Ah, you know, I'm, I need to take a rest. It's been a long day. I need to sit down and put my feet up. I need to, I'm not arguing that everyone's going to do this, but I'm saying if he's right, and if with 10 minutes a day, you can get yourself into much better shape, it at least removes one of the excuses. I'm gonna, I, I, am, I am gonna give it a try. I am going to give this a try and not just for one day and I'm gonna see if it starts to work. And if the science is right, it says that within a few weeks, I should be seeing some kind of result in my fitness. You know what I wanna find from this? I wanna be able to walk up a couple flights of stairs without being out of breath. And I'm not horribly overweight, I'm not. And yet still, because I'm out of shape, you start walking up a bunch of stairs and you're, you're sucking air a little bit at the top. If I can, if I, with a few weeks of doing this and my family's going to kill me because I'll be doing this late at night when I'll be pounding 
up and down the stairs in the house, but they'll have to deal with it. It's only 10 minutes. If I can get to the point where I can run up and down the stairs and not be gassed, this will be good science. We'll try it. Check back in four or five weeks. I'll tell you. I'm not promising I'm starting tonight, by the way, but very soon. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Earlier this evening, I was checking the um, city council agenda going into tonight's meeting, and something jumped off the page at me, and I quickly looked it up and read it. And I got to tell you, I was absolutely beyond delighted to read this. Sometimes, I'm not going to say all the time, but sometimes it seems almost impossible to get this city to do certain things. And then in the midst of the gloom, a beacon of light shines through the clouds because a city councilor or someone on staff has done something so bright and so smart and so overdue that you just feel good about stuff. Well, let me tell you what it is. And before I do that, let me bring in my next guest. Bill Friday is a former NHL and WHA referee. He's a legend. He's one of the great NHL and WHA referees, pro referees, period, in the in the game of hockey. He's a Hamilton guy. If, you, if you've been around hockey in the city at all, you, know, you probably know Bill Friday, but you certainly know of him. Bill, thanks for joining me tonight. My pleasure. Uh, so now, do you, did you hear what happened tonight at City Council? No, I didn't. Well, I'll tell you what it is. There is a, a notice of motion that was brought forward by Councillor Tom Jackson tonight. That it's a long thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It says a lot of very, very nice things about you. Uh, you know them all already, and I'll get to them eventually. Um, but eventually it ends by saying, Therefore, be it resolved that staff be directed to bring a report to the Facility Naming Subcommittee respecting the renaming of Lawfield Arena to the Bill Friday Lawfield Arena. Holy smokes. They want to name a rink after you. (laughs) I don't know why. Well, that's partly why they want to, because you're a humble guy. But congratulations. That's a a big deal. Well, that's quite an honor, yes. I mean, you've never, had you ever thought that, I mean, players, they do this for, uh, sometimes. Uh, I went to Harry Hall's when they opened up that arena in in Waterdown uh, and named it the Harry Hall Arena. So I went to that, and I was quite impressed with it, and he certainly deserved it. Yeah, you grew up with Harry, right? Or at least yeah, you were... Uh, I played ball with Harry and hockey with Harry, yeah, before he went to Guelph. Yeah. Okay, so, you, I mean, you, you, you all grew up. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But, you, I mean, you know that these things happen occasionally, but i got to believe that most officials don't think that they will ever have something, because no official ever has a hometown. Nobody, it's just not something that happens. It's, it, this doesn't happen all that often. So it's a, it's, to me, it seems like a, it's, it's a great thing. I'm, I'm so happy that Tom Jackson decided to do this. I think it's long overdue for you, Bill. I think it's a wonderful thing, but I got to admit, I'm a little surprised. Not that, it's, not that you're not worthy, just that someone's actually doing it. I'm, I'm, I'm just so impressed. Well, I'm not, I'm not so sure I deserve that, though. Well, see, I disagree. I disagree. Let's let's go back to I want it for people who don't know your story. Uh, you said you grew up with Harry Hall. Where did, whereabouts in Hamilton did you roughly grow up? You and he. Well, we I was we we played ball at uh, Mahoney Park and Stony and uh, Scott Park. Okay. And we played uh, at the old Hamilton Forum. And and you guys played hockey together as well. Yeah, this was when probably Bantam, and then Harry, of course, went on to play uh, junior A up in Guelph. I was going to say that the fact that he went on to play junior A and then become one of the all-time greats in the NHL and you went to go to be an official suggests he might have been a slightly better player. Oh, he was, <laughs> yeah, was a lot better than me. <laughs> yeah, Back, I, played, I, I did play junior B here. Did you? Time. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. So you were, I mean, I made fun of you, but you're, I mean, you were a good player. Well, I wouldn't say I was a good player, but. I played with Danny Poliziani and, and young Barlow, one of the Barlow brothers. Uh, we had a pretty good team. What was the hockey situation like back then? I mean, were there were there a ton of rinks around, or like, how, where did you play? Well, no, there wasn't. We played at the old Forum. Yep, but even before that, when you were a kid, when you were starting out, well, the, we played in outdoor rinks. And was there organized hockey like there's not? There wasn't like not there is like today. Today, no, gosh, no. So how did where did you play in the police system? Yeah, well, <laughs> what happened was uh, the police system run out of money, or like the hockey, and baseball and hockey, they run out of money, and that's when the police took it over, 
uh, and it's now it was the Hamilton Police Force, uh, Hamilton Police Association, that took over the baseball and the hockey. And I was playing, I think I was about 12 years old then, and my dad was, I think, the first president of the Hamilton Police. He got it started, so we'd have a place to play. Huh. And, and so I remember Harry telling the story that he used to have to, I guess, walk from home or wherever to try and get to the rink, and it would be outdoors, and you'd be freezing half to death. Oh, but yeah, I mean, did... play, well, we played at Scott Park out, outdoors, and, uh, and then, you know, later on, uh, most of my hockey was in the Hamilton Forum, really. I played juvenile there, and, and I went to junior B. But I never, I belonged to Cleveland, but I got married at a young age, and I just kind of gave up my hockey and started refereeing uh, six games a night in the police league for a dollar a game. Is that is that why you started refereeing, because you could make some money? Yep. Yeah, I, wish I sure did. <laughs> and, and were there any, I mean, today, if you want to become an official, I mean, if I want to officiate a tight game, there's an awful lot of programs I have to go through in order to be qualified to do that. What did you have to do to be qualified to referee then? Nothing in those days. Just Huey <laughs> McLean got me started, and Huey had worked in the NHL for three years, and then he had that little deal with Richard. And uh, everywhere he went, I went as his linesman. And then when he went to Squaw Valley to do the junior, uh, the Olympics. I uh, got my first junior A game. Well, sorry, what was his deal with Richard? He wasn't part of the Richard riot. He was part of the Richard, no. It was a, an, an altercation in New York, I think, in front of the hotel. Oh, okay. Something had happened in the game, and the players, uh, Montreal players, got Richard all upset, and he had an altercation with Huey, and, and you know, who was going to go, <laughs> Huey or Richard? <laughs> so how did you then learn to become a referee? Well, everywhere Huey went, uh, I went with them to do it. We'd go all the way to Windsor for 10 bucks a game uh, for a senior A game, and that would be on a Sunday. So we, you know how far it is to drive to Windsor from Hamilton. We drove up, we drove back in Huey's car. Huey got mileage. We got 10 bucks a game, and we had to buy our own supper. <laughs> and were you, th- this may be an odd question to ask, but honestly, I mean, did you feel like you were pretty good at it? Well, you know, I I didn't know at the time, but, uh, well, I only refereed six junior A games in my life, and uh, when Huey went to Squaw Valley, uh, that's how I got started, doing junior A, and then I did seven playoff games. So I did more playoff games than, than regular season games in junior, and I never got to work senior games, just senior B in Welland and places like that, when we had a two-referee system then. Well, and, and today, again, to use today as the example, today uh, there, are, there are scouts for everything in hockey, but there's even scouts for officials. They will go out and try and find the, the kids that are looking like they get the game and they have a feel for it. How, back then, how do you move up? How do you become the guy that they call you up and say, Bill, I need you to do a whatever game? Well, they just, like, we had a referee in chief, his name was Pat Patterson, and Bill uh, Hanley did all the uh, assignments. And that was just, you worked the games, and the coaches would uh, more or less critique all the referees that came, and through, the, through that, you would get your opportunity to advance. So how do you go then from doing junior A games and some playoff games, how do you suddenly land in the NHL? Well, that year that I worked uh, at that, I, I was asked if I would work the uh, Memorial Cup semifinals, Eastern Canadian, uh, on the lines, which I did with Joe Smith. And then I was asked if I would do the Memorial, or the, uh, Memorial Cup with Joe Smith, which I said yes. And the next year, or that next spring, uh, that was in the spring, and in the fall the NHL asked me if I'd like to try out for the NHL, and I made it, I guess, and as uh, there was two of us trying out for refereeing, and six guys tried out for lines work, and uh, I got picked, and Ronnie, uh, 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 Ronnie Wicks got picked. Okay. How, how Back then, how did you try out? Did they just give you some games and whoever did yeah, the best job? Yeah, you worked the exhibition games. And uh, out of those exhibition games, we both worked them. I don't even know who the fellow's name was from up north. 
Uh, we both worked exhibition games with the regular referees, uh, and uh, they picked us. They and, picked one guy. And what did NHL referees make back in, what year was that? That was in 1960. What did an NHL referee make in 1960? My first contract was $5,000. For how many games would you do, a full schedule? Oh, yeah. But what happened that you got paid per game, so much for the EPHL, so much for the American League, so much if you got a National League game. I think I worked one my first year. And my per game salary only worked out to $3,400, <laughs> they had to pay me 5000 But I worked 12 playoff games for nothing in the American League. Do you remember the teams that were in your first game? My first game, yeah, was Montreal and Detroit in Montreal. And was it, was it an easy game, or was it a... Well, it was easy. It was 9-3, I think. I, I don't even remember who won, okay. <laughs> but I was scared to death. Really, eh? Oh, yeah. Now, you did over 1,400 games, ultimately. Um, I guess that probably when you do that many games, they most of them just blend in one to the next. They all just become a sort of a... Uh, a big storyline, but there must be one or two that stand out that you really vividly remember. Well, I don't know, not really. That I guess when I, my first Stanley Cup game was a big thing. Uh, I worked game number, I think I worked game number four. Like one guy would work uh, one and one and five, and somebody else would work two and six, three and seven, and then four. So I worked my first year in the NHL. I, uh, my first year I worked the National League playoffs. I, I did number four. And then after that, I did number one and five. Pretty steady for about four or five years. And then I went to the WHA to make some money. Well, now that's interesting because I remember talking to you years ago, and, and I, I may have made a mess of this, but when you left the NHL to go to the WHA and you became, you were the first, uh, WHA's first referee-in-chief, I understand. Well, yeah, well, Vern Buffy was actually the referee-in-chief. Okay, but I understand there were some hard feelings with the NHL people, is that right? Well, yeah, they see, we only got one-year contracts in those days because then they could get rid of you. Okay. And uh, the WHA offered me three years and with a lot more money. So I went back to Scotty Morrison, who was the referee-in-chief, and he went to see Mr. Campbell, and he said, Mr. told him, Mr. Campbell said, we don't give three-year contracts. But then they decided they would give me a three-year contract, uh, but the money wasn't there. So I went where the money was because... What the heck, I had 12 years in, and I figured 13 was the most anybody had ever worked up to that time. Uh, and I ended up with 19 years altogether. Well, and I, and I, the NHL at that time, I mean, there were things that may have been a little bit uh, goofy about the NHL, but the WHA, um, the stories are legend about the WHA because it was, it was, it was a different kind of league. Did, when you had some characters. When yeah. you got there... Were there times when you said, I mean, the money's nice, but Bill, what are you doing? Well, I, yes, there were times <laughs> like that. But then I got thinking, well, they're paying me a lot of money for this, so I can put up with a little of this crap. So, Do you, was, there, was there something that stands out as one of those moments when you said, well, this is just... Well, yeah, yeah, we had some, you know, I had guys that put uh, tinfoil on their on their hands, before, uh, under their gloves. The Hanson brothers, for real. Well, the Hanson brothers were playing with Minnesota. They were for real, but there was a guy by the name of Curtin Rackenberry who put <laughs> in foil, but he showed it to me. And I said, well, if you get in a fight, I'm going to throw you out. And he said, I know, but the coach is making me do it. <laughs> the coaches in those days, that was Harry Neal and Glenn Sonmore. It's, um, it's, I mean, it's a great career. You're the only, I understand that you're the only referee to have refereed a Stanley Cup final game and an Avco Cup final game, which was yep. the WHA's yeah, I am, yeah. version of it. That's, that's, you know, that's a cool thing to have on the resume. I, I don't know that the resume gets sent out much anymore, but that's a cool thing to have on the resume that you yeah, did those I, two things. I worked the finals in both leagues. I worked the finals in every, every year in the WHA uh, because they were paying me a big, you know, big money. But... Uh, it was interesting, but we had some characters in that league, believe me. Uh, I, You know, one of these days we'll have you back to talk about the WHA people because it's, uh, I'm sure we could do probably two hours just on oh, yeah, on yeah. those stories. Some of the coaches, too, 
duo, I'll tell you. Who was, who was, we only have a second here left, but who was there a coach in that league or, or in any league? Who was the coach that used to just ride you the most? Who was the coach that you just hated dealing with? Well, I don't, I don't know. I, well, see, it was a coach that would have the roughest teams generally because, you know, I knew I was good, what I had to do and I just had to straighten some of them out. But So had you jumped to the WHA then by the time the Broad Street Bullies got into full bloom? Right. Well, the Broad Street Bullies started in 72, and that was the year that I'd left. Okay, so yeah. I didn't, I didn't have them as it was, but I did, uh, I did have some games when the, WA, or when the NHL went to uh, 12 teams between Philadelphia and, uh, like, St. Louis or teams like that. Yeah. Because, you know, they played an interlocking schedule, sort of, and then they played the playoffs one against the other, and, of course, the original NHL used to, you know, only play maybe four or five games and they'd, they'd whip them pretty good. It is, uh, it, it is a great thing, Bill, that now this hasn't gone through yet. And I, I, I have to clarify that because it still has to get through the whole stuff, but it looks as though it looks very likely that city council is going to rename Lawfield arena as the bill Friday Lawfield arena. And they actually want to do this really fast. They want to have this done by the middle of April when we have the uh, hometown hockey in Hamilton, the Sunday night, uh, televised thing, nationally televised thing. So they're, this is on a fast track and bill. Well, you know, it's just hearing about this. It's, it's a, well, it's kind of a, a real privilege to uh, the, that they've even thought of that. Well, it's it's wonderfully well deserved, and I'm so glad that I'm so glad they're doing it because it's so much of a fight, and you know, because it took a long time for Harry to get the rink named after him. It's so yes. good they're doing yes. this, and uh, and I'm so happy for you, and I, I think it's a brilliant thing. And uh, Bill, I really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this. Congratulations. My pleasure, and boy, uh, I, I you know I haven't heard anything about it, but it would be. Uh, quite a privilege to have it done. Bill, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure. Thank you. That is Bill Friday, former referee in the WHA and the NHL 1400 games. Um, guy who probably, you know what, if you look at the list of officials who are in the Hockey Hall of Fame, that's another thing that we should be talking about. He's in the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame. But if you look at the other guys who are in the Hockey Hall of Fame, Bill Friday's credentials are right up there. But for now, for now, we at least look like we're heading towards his recognition here in town. And again, it hap- It seems to be like butting your head against a wall to get these things to happen. Thank goodness. Thank you to Tom Jackson, Councillor Tom Jackson, for taking the initiative on this one and not making this, and the other councillors who passed it today to move it forward, not making this into a laborious fight that they so often seem to be. Congratulations. Big applause to all of you who, who did this one today, especially Tom Jackson. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.